This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see everyone. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. If this is your first time here this weekend, we're really glad that you uh, took some time out to be with us. I know it's you know the weekend before a holiday and a lot going on. Maybe you're here with some family or whatever. If you are here for the first time, let me just invite you. There's some connect cards in front of you in the seat pocket in front of you, and uh, you could fill that out. And on there is also an opportunity if you're attending but been here for a little bit and trying to get connected. Uh, there's a spot on there you can check. Uh, and say, yes, I'd like to get the newsletter. If you aren't already getting our newsletter, it comes every Monday morning at 6 a.m. And so, uh, but if you don't check that box, they're not going to send it to you. We don't want to spam you or anything like that. If you'd like to get it, make sure you actually give us a functional email, not your throwaway email. Otherwise, it will do you no good. And then uh, if you would, with those uh, uh, offering, uh, with those uh, Connect cards, you can do one of two things. You can stop by the offering boxes that are at the back of the room. Uh, you may have noticed we don't, do an, don't take up an offering. We do our offering through the boxes or online. Uh, if you prefer, which I'd love for you to do, if you go out to the tent and hand them that card, they will also give you a little gift just to say thank you for being our guest this morning. So, well, Thanksgiving, just a few days away. Heads up, they have picked this week to move the bridge. If you didn't already see the semis arriving two hours earlier than I asked them to, (laughs) they're going to be out there blocking off 41 entirely all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You will not be able to pass here at all. Uh, you can turn in at Natali and go through the parking lot, but that's going to get crazy. So I'm just warning you ahead of time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you don't want to go north on 41 through downtown. It's going to be a mess. Hail will be completely blocked off. Uh, it's just, you're not getting through. Just figure another way around. That's my, my one thing I want to urge you uh, uh, through that, and then hopefully uh, they have that all done uh, before Thanksgiving, and so on Sunday morning, uh, the, you know, everything will be clear, and uh, they will uh, get a move on and move down the road, uh, some other things they're going to take care of. They've still got some work to do out front here, uh, but uh, it will be less um, you know, of a pain in that way. Second thing, I just want to say, I'm just so glad to see you this morning, because as I was heading in Thursday or Friday night, uh, I, I, we, I drove up Thursday to uh, get my daughter in Alabama and bring them down for Thanksgiving week. Uh, her husband is off uh, doing um, uh, survival games. Uh, he's in the military, and so while we're eating turkey dinner, he will be eating bugs or something like that. So if you want to lift up Peter in prayer, I'm sure he would appreciate it. Uh, that's a, a tough uh, thing, but, um, but as I was driving in, I just couldn't help notice, like, once you get, like, to the Florida-Georgia line there, and you've, you know, it's on the Friday before, like, every plate around me was somewhere from the Midwest about six hours out, you know, that they had just 
driven. And so the fact that you're here this morning means a lot to me. Thank you for, you know, like you not disappearing this weekend on us. I'm glad to see you. And uh, so anyhow, and then a big shout out to Bobby for uh, filling in for last week. Uh, Want to give him a, yes, give him a, a clap. Yeah. I was with the, uh, the men of the Cape Coral Vineyard. We had a men's weekend, an amazing time, saw six men give their lives to Christ. So very excited. Saw another 20 answer a call just to, be, to step up to be men of God in their homes and in their life. Yeah. And then finally, another 10 committed to be accountability partners with other men. So uh, I, I was just uh, very excited. Uh, great weekend. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe, we'll, if, maybe next year some of you would like to go with me if we go again. So, all right. Well. Gospel of John, you saw as we opened the series today, eternal life being the primary theme of the Gospel of John. Uh, as I've said, uh, you know, almost every week, maybe every week, uh, you know, that throughout the Gospel of John, uh, John uniquely uses the word uh, sozo or uh, zoe to refer to life. He doesn't use the word uh, bios, where from which we get our word biology, referring to just physical life, but always there's this sense in which throughout the book he's pointing to a quality of life, an expectation, the idea being that not so much of us getting into heaven, but getting heaven into us, that, that the kingdom of God advancing uh, does so primarily through the agency of uh, us as human beings, that God uh, calls us to his own, and as we come to him, he begins to transform our lives in such a way that our lives begin to overflow with a quality of life, a sozo kind of life, the eternal life, the abundant life, and that people can taste and see that God is good, that the kingdom is uh, the solution, the hope of the cosmos, and it is bringing joy and bringing uh, new life, abundant life, to all who will engage it on those terms. And so there's this expectation that you and I are being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the expectation being that you and I uh, want to live lives that are in step with God, that we are longing for the day in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that we like Him, that we like His ways, and we want His will to be done throughout the earth, throughout the cosmos. And so as we're longing for that, we are changing our lives to get in step with Him. We're working, we're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in this transformation and becoming the kind of people where when people encounter us, they go, that is life, and I want some of that. Well, this week we are looking at some of the events, uh, you know, here in the, uh, in, in the betrayal of Jesus uh, by his disciples, uh, which is, I think, very instructive for us, just in terms of uh, just the heart of Jesus and how he responds to us. Oftentimes, uh, you and I have uh, had the view of the gospel tremendously distorted by legalism, by preaching of just kind of a condemnation kind of message, in which we live just in this 
constant sense of uh, distrust, that God is not for us, that he doesn't love us. And really, that was the message uh, that Satan was proposing, right, in Genesis when he told them, you can't trust God, you need to take matters into your own hands and eat of the fruit because God is not for you, he's not with you, he's withholding things from you, everything that's good. God is just really not on your side, he's, he's, he's against you. And so oftentimes, you know, we either growing up in the church or even after coming to faith as adults uh, begin to co-opt this kind of distorted legalistic message that God is looking to squash you. And of course, if he wanted to, he already had just cause. He didn't need to send Jesus to die for you if he wanted to squash you. If that was the goal, he already had it completely justified and that, you know, the reality is the scripture tells us that we, we deserved, you know, to go our own way. And yet, here's the thing, in the midst of it, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have this kind of everlasting life, this quality of life. So here, in the midst of the betrayal, uh, you know, not only Judas, usually when we say the betrayal, people immediately are thinking about Judas, Judas' actions, but really, if you have ever in your life been abandoned by those who swore to protect you, trust, you know, that they would never leave your side, trust me, you know, you know, you know, you know that Jesus wasn't just betrayed by Judas that night, that he was abandoned, he was betrayed by all of, the, the, of those closest to him, with the exception maybe being the Apostle John, and then of course the handful of women, most of them are named Mary, which is kind of interesting in itself, right? But, uh, you know, so, and, 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 and so, you know, uh, Here we are in this moment of great pain, and we watch Jesus' response in the midst of this, his heart for us that he demonstrates clearly when he had every reason to then in return abandon us, and he sticks by us going to the cross, and that is with this great joy of awareness of what is going to be in the end, that he endures its suffering, its pain, its scorn. We watch as Jesus goes to try his first trial. We'll get, we'll get to the first trial at the house of Annas, which also is showing to us that just the heart of Jesus in the midst of this sham of a trial and, and how in the midst of this we're watching as the Jewish leaders are doing anything to win, even doing things that completely violate the law, and that how in the midst of this Jesus' response across each trial, revealing his heart for us and his intent, his purposeful intent to go to the cross for our sake. With that in mind, let's open our Bibles this morning, if you will. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to be reading it from the English Standard Version, but please, Follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. It's my favorite translation because you're reading it. Let's take a look. John 18, beginning of verse 1, and we read these words. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas 
having uh, procured a band of soldiers, actually in the text there we're talking about specifically Roman soldiers, and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, then he drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not, uh, are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also went with, was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, there are a number of details here in this biography of Jesus that are not included in uh, uh, the others. Uh, as I mentioned uh, 
repeatedly throughout the go- looking at the Gospel of John. It has a lot of unique material. It's why we call the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, meaning that they have so much similar uh, material in them. John has a lot of unique uh, uh, material, uh, a lot of individual conversations that are not recorded in any of the other Gospels, giving us some real insight into his relationship with uh, persons. Um, and, uh, you know, here, uh, one of the things that we see again is that within the uh, Gospel of John, there are 14 I am statements. Seven of them are very direct, where Jesus said, I am, and it's just an absolute statement. Uh, and essentially, uh, had they, if they were spoken in, in Aramaic, it would have come out directly as Yahweh. I am. Definitive statement. Uh, And we see that again throughout the Gospel of John, there are many references to Jesus as I am. Many scriptures that are quoted about the coming of Yahweh to Jerusalem, uh, specifically in the mouth of John the Baptist and the things he proclaims, declaring that Jesus is the great I am. And then uh, there are seven uh, indirect statements that are within uh, the Gospel of John where he uh, you know, says some things in, in terms of I am statements that are alluding to him being Yahweh but are not as definitive. You could kind of argue them both ways, uh, you know, uh, but we have every reason to believe that they're very intentionally put there by John to paint that picture to us of just who Jesus is. But of course, we want to be honest and not overpress those uh, in a way that would be uh, you know, intellectually dishonest. But, but here, John wants us to clearly understand that you know, Jesus is, is declaring who he is, and he's not hiding. He's not, uh, he's, instead, what he's done is he's embraced the moment and virtually dog-whistled his captors, right? Like, you know, who are you looking for over there? Now, one of the things I brought up early on that I I was uh, pointing out to you as we were reading is that the words there uh, referring to those officers uh, literally is referring to the idea that an entire cohort, in other words, uh, the idea is that when Judas went to the uh, high priest and they offered him money and things like that, that they appealed to get the entire Roman army in Jerusalem out on the hunt for Jesus that night. So it's not just like he's got the whole entire Roman army with him in that location. They're just all out looking, and then Judas is leading this little group, and he knows right where to look. Now, keep in mind, like we're, when we're talking about that, uh, so he's, we've got, we've got uh, the people from the guard that come from the high priest that are there. Uh, so we've got officers uh, uh, that are, respond to the high priest. We've got Roman cohort. We've got all these people. Like, it, it's, this is a mob, you know? I don't, I don't, no matter how few you've got of each one, you've, still, you've got a mob. And apparently, like even Malchus's, you know, cousins there and everything, everybody's out looking for Jesus, which is, you know, we could over-spiritualize that real quick, but anyhow, you know, I mean, but it is kind of, it's, it's almost a dark comedy, you know? We don't read it that way because you're not supposed to in church, right? But listen, there's almost a dark comedy aspect to this. I mean, they come up and then like, as he turns to them and he goes, who are you looking for? And they go, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I'm he, and they, 
You know, I like like Larry Moen Curly. You know, uh, a little bit like Wayne's World. I don't know. You know, I, you, you pick your uh, your you know comedic blunders. Uh, you know, I, you know maybe uh, maybe a little Harry and Lloyd. I'm not sure, but anyhow. Um, but you've got to keep in mind, like, these are hardened Roman soldiers, right? They're battle-hardened. You don't just, like, get in the Roman army. If you spend any time reading about what Roman soldiers were like, like, this was a really difficult, difficult life. Uh, they were, uh, in fact, it, by, we're talking, like, in Jesus' day and time, Roman soldiers were not even allowed to marry, and if they did marry against the wishes of their command, those children were, in a court of law, treated as illegitimate. So most Roman soldiers never married. They were committed to a way of life that was very brutal. Oftentimes, a small unit of Roman soldiers would take on entire armies of other nations and wipe them out, leaving not one person alive. They were brutal, brutal soldiers. So when they are stumbling in this kind of comedic fashion, like there, there's, a, there's a, something that we're being told in the midst of this, like the expectation of what's going to happen. And if you and I like maybe scroll over to the Gospel of Mark that we were in earlier in the year and stuff like that, we know that one of the comments in this that Jesus asked in those other Gospels that's not recorded here is he says, am I a lesti that you would come out to me at night? And our, uh, you know, unfortunately... Most of our popular translations translate that highwayman, robber. Lest I is the word for terrorist. Right? And he's challenging them like, I've been out in the public every day, and now you come out here at night. You come and you act in this way. They've literally released the entire Roman army that would have been in Jerusalem to go looking for him. I mean, this is like. This is like next level, right? I mean, they are like going over the top to go look for a man who literally stands out in public every day. They are so ramped up. The Jews are so determined. The Jewish leaders at this point are so determined to get Jesus. Like, they, we're going to finish this before Passover. I'm going to enjoy Passover because that guy is going to be dead. That's the attitude. We are going to kill that mm-mm-mm. So I can enjoy me some roast. And so when they come upon him and he says, I'm he, you got to think these soldiers are ramped up. Hey, man, they, they are sending us out. We're on a total manhunt. Everybody's been alerted. We're going to find this guy. We're, it, it's going to be a battle. We've got swords drawn. We're ready to go to war. You know, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. This guy, they've been writing all this stuff about Messiah on the walls. I mean, we know how these, these Jews uh, can be, you know, with their little cell groups and everything. And, man, what's going to happen? And so when they come, they're ready. They're just ready to go to war. And then all of a sudden he goes, hey, I'm right here. And it's completely confounding to them because they're expecting a terrorist. They're expecting a warrior. They've heard the stories that Messiah is a warrior king who's going to go to war with Rome. That's why they're there. They don't just like 
every time the, the high priest comes to call and says, oh, I'd like to have the whole Roman army here in the city of Jerusalem go look for this guy. That's nice. Go do your own thing. But tonight, everybody's on the hunt for Jesus. And Judas... And Judas, having been in the sweetest of relationship with Jesus, knows just where to find him. Where he will be praying. Does that not sting to the deepest part, if you think about it, in terms of the level of betrayal? One of the other Gospels will tell us that it is with a kiss. And we all know that's not what a kiss is for. Massive effort to find the renegade preacher. No Instagram, no X-feed. Somehow they can't contain him. They're so worried. And so when it's Jesus talking... Everybody gets clumsy, and there's this nearly botched surrender. How do you botch a surrender? <laughs> but then you and I are also reminded what? That the Jewish guard had repeatedly been sent to arrest Jesus and failed. Right? The, the high priest, like, what's wrong with you guys? Uh, why is it that you're so deceived? I don't, never has a man spoken like that. Here's, here's what the deal is. Like, they want this done before Passover is finished. And they're worried to death that this guy is going to slip through their fingers yet again. So they're determined. They send the hardened Roman soldiers out there. They're doing everything they can to quell this potential uprising. And everyone who promised Jesus that they would not betray him did. Except for Peter, in a way, if you think about it. Right, he swings his sword against the Romans, right? And, and then Jesus tells him not to do that. That's not the way that this is going to happen. I'm going to embrace what my Father has given me to do. And now Peter is completely befuddled. Does, uh, everything. Look, Peter was clearly ready to die. There's an entire cohort of Roman soldiers around him, and he draws his sword without a thought and takes off Malchus' ear. And then Jesus does something so surprising. It doesn't record it here in John for us, but he picks up his bloody ear and puts it back on. Literally, Jesus goes to the cross with the blood of another man's hand, another man's blood on his hands. Just so symbolic, right? I mean, how Jesus gives his life for us. And in that moment, do you realize that's probably the only reason Peter didn't get killed? Is because of Jesus' actions on his behalf in that moment. By the way, the reason they tell us over and over again it's Malchus, is because Malchus later becomes a very well-known follower of Jesus. I wonder why. 
know, anything happen in your life recently? Just Nothing's going according to plan. It is chaos, it is mayhem, and yet in the midst of chaos and mayhem, just like Genesis 1, just like John quoted in John 1, Yahweh speaks into the darkness, into the chaos, and he brings about order. And God has taken control of the circumstances. What, what you and I are reading is chaos is no longer chaos. It's not chaos. There is all the swirling around, and yet in the midst of it, order is coming into place because God is in control. I am. That means Yahweh is here. Yahweh heals Malchus. Yahweh frees the disciples in spite of what they thought was going to happen. Yahweh is in control. Not the Roman soldiers. They're clearly not in control. Not the Jewish officials. They're clearly not in control. Like all through this text, what you're watching is just almost like bumbling idiocy. And then there's Jesus. Jesus sets his sights on the cross. And nobody's gotten it. Nobody understands what's happening. Swiftly, we move to the home of Annas. Now, this is where people always get confused because it talks about Annas being high priest and Caiaphas being high priest, and it goes back and forth, and it kind of gets confusing, especially when you're looking at some of the others. Here, John makes it a little clearer, but uh, let, let me just, I, I've mentioned this to you before, uh, if you've you know, been around for any amount of time, but there was a great political struggle going on among the high priests. Being high priest was a very powerful position because essentially it's a political post. It's not supposed to be, but it is evolved into that. It's, it's, or I should say it's devolved into that, right? When, when the church grabs hold of the power of the state, historically it has always become a disaster. And so the high priest, this guy Annas, is like the power broker in all of Israel. Five generations of his family have been high priests. He is not a Pharisee, he's a Sadducee, he does not believe in the resurrection. He is thoroughly Greek in his orientation, uh, he is in, you know, cahoots with uh, the, you know, with uh, the powers of Rome and things like that. This is not a good guy. This guy is a thoroughgoing politician. And in the midst of things, to, you know, uh, about 10 years earlier, a, the uh, previous guy to Pilate was a guy by the name of Valerius Gratus. And he saw how powerful Annas was, and he got worried, and he knew that he had a blood-sucking son-in-law named Caiaphas, who was probably the only more political person in all of Israel than Annas. That's why he married the guy's daughter, right? Because that's how politics works. Have you ever... No, I mean not in our country, like other countries, right? No, those things don't happen in our country. But, but so there's this, 
sucking up that's going on and the positioning of power. And so he marries the guy's daughter-in-law as the most powerful person because he wants to be the most powerful person. And he sucks up to Valerius. And Valerius goes, you know what? Ennis is getting too powerful. I need some other blood-sucking scum to be the politician in this position instead of that blood-sucking scum. And so he's like maneuvering and he says, hey, as prefect, I can order this. And so he puts Caiaphas into the office and deposes Annas. It's 15 years later and everybody else in Jerusalem knows what? That you want to know who the real high priest is? It's Annas. Caiaphas is by position. You know what that, that's like, right? Like when the, that old saying, you know, if you have to tell them that you're the leader, you're not the leader. <laughs> Right? If, if you look around and no one's following you, you're not a leader. You might have a position. Caiaphas has a position. Annas is the power. You know how you know that? Even if you didn't know all the other history? Where do the Roman guards take Jesus? Hello? Because you know what? They know. Even the Gentiles know who the real power broker is. So here in the midst of all of this, they put Jesus on trial. Now, the Apostle John wants to remind us that Caiaphas is the actual high priest and that he prophesied in John 11, 49-50 that it was better for one man to die than for all to suffer feels really important that he tells us that. I think in part probably because we know that John is somehow connected to the high priestly family. Kind of surprising for a Galilean fisherman. Doesn't make any sense. I don't know how that works. But there in the house of Annas, we see the contrast between Jesus' purposeful surrender to the events and then the incompetence and the lack of justice in a kangaroo court. First off, you may not know this, but in a Jewish court of law, the accused never, I repeat, the accused never are questioned. If you're accused, the assumption is that you are innocent until proven guilty, and that the testimony must be at the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's why when it says things about at the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is bound on earth as it is in heaven, it's referring to Jewish courts of law. That's how it's done. The person who is accused is innocent unless two or three people can prove them guilty, and it has to be a minimum of two or three people to corroborate, and they have to have their testimony separated. It's a very interesting process, but to the degree that their testimony is corroborated, accusation can stand. But if there's any discrepancy in those things, the person is assumed innocent. And so to protect the accused from self-incrimination, they are never, ever questioned. Never, ever, never, 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 ever question. So when we open up with this and the high priest and Annas is questioning Jesus, like the, the fix is in, man. You know, what, I mean, the fix is in. You know, like, why is he doing this? 
There's, there's vendetta here. There is, we're talking about, it, it's not only a huge violation of Jewish law, but there's a tremendous personal vendetta here. He is angry. This guy has taken away his power. He has challenged his right to rule. He has challenged his teachings, his way of life, everything. This guy is furious. I'm going to kill this SLB before the night is out so I can enjoy my roast. I'm going to have some roast lamb, and I'm going to eat his spleen, metaphorically, over Passover. You know, nice holidays celebrating the goodness and kindness of God and his forgiveness. The fix is in. And so when Jesus replies kind of cheeky, he gets smacked by the Jewish official. And, and listen, like it doesn't make any because all he did was he pointed out Number one, you violated your own law. You're here challenging me and accusing me when you, you heretic, you, you hypocritical, you know, landman. I mean, listen what you're doing. He could have said a number of things he didn't because, you know, Jesus just pointed out. If I've done anything, where's your witnesses? That's the way we do things in a Jewish court of law. That's the way we do things according to the law. If... I have done anything. I've been out there every day. And you can't amass two or three witnesses to corroborate? We know that in other Gospels that they did try, and like everybody messes it up. Like they, it's like the, this, the kangaroo court, they get up and they go, yeah, well, he, he, he said this, yeah, and it was, it was bad. Yeah. You got just the dumbest people in court. Not that that... Well, okay, anyhow, so, um, and so this Jewish official does what's completely unacceptable, and he just reaches over and smacks him in the mouth. Remember again, innocent until proven guilty. That's not something we invented. And he because he called them on how they were abusing the law, the political nature of the court. Jesus full, knew full well who was questioning him. Everybody knew, knows who Annas is. It's not Caiaphas. And he put them in their place with one statement, one simple question. And the interesting thing is the charges against him of sedition and secrecy? Like, what are they doing? The, everything that they have accused him of, they are committing right at that moment. And then in that moment, Jesus, Jesus says, well, if I had known it was the high priest, and G Jesus was just pointing out that Dude, you're not the high priest. And of course, that just further infuriates. And I mean, like, in that sly comment, Jesus alone signed his death warrant. Because remember, Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. Jesus is embracing. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross in its shame. He is going there intentionally. He is baiting them. Come on. Use your free will. 
Go ahead. Please, use your free will, and we will seal this deal. Because even Satan's going like, no, 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 no. Look, you can just jump off the temple, and everybody will get excited and start following you. If you'll just bow down, I can get everybody on board. We can do a slick advertising campaign. You know, I mean, like, we, can, we know how to fill a church, man. We can, we can do all this cool stuff. We can entertain people, and no, nobody has to suffer. Nobody has to, nothing has to be difficult. And Jesus presses on toward the cross. And in this moment, he seals his, the, like in, in all of Anna's free will, he goes, I'm going to kill that guy. Yes, he will. Because there's no one who thinks more of Annas than Annas. You ever notice that? His son-in-law, Caiaphas, might have been a politician, but uh, <laughs> there's nobody thinks more of himself than Annas. And how God, through his spirit, gives this prophetic word through Caiaphas, virtually pitting the two men against one another, ramping this thing up, and everybody still making their own free will decisions. God is a master chess player. When you and I think about God being slow to come in His final coming, His final return, just remember that all of us out here, free will, doing our own thing, and yet He still wins. You got well, how many billion people on the face of the earth and God's maneuvering all around them, and, and He's still winning the day. It, it is just so fascinating. I, it's, just like, it's the thing that makes you go, wow, you really are God. Not because you can just like make every, everybody shut up and do this. No, like he's God because he's working in the midst of it and people's free wills are playing into all of this. You came to Jesus because you saw the light of his truth in spite of what you thought wanted to do and everything else and you, you began to change your life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're experiencing more of his presence, more of his kindness, and, and like, look at all that, how that's working. Beyond brilliant. So in the midst of raging against the Messiah and killing him at just the appointed time, providing the sacrifice for sins, tearing the veil, the very fabric between heaven and earth so that eternal life could be realized in the present, I mean, like, that's... Wow, I just, I know, I just gave away the ending, right? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> you don't want to watch a movie with me, by the way, just telling you, if you don't like that. But Now let me come back to Peter. Didn't forget Peter. He takes off Malchus' ear because Peter is committed to what he believes. And no one is more devastated than Peter when he fails Jesus unless it was Judas, maybe. I am convinced that Judas really believed that he was, in his actions, provoking Jesus to act decisively in the way that he thought Jesus should act decisively. Anybody here ever, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but anybody here, like you ever tried to tell God how he should do it? 
you know, the way you think he should do it instead of the way he's doing it, and you explain to God in all of your infinite wisdom why he should do it your way instead of his way. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, just, yeah, all too many times, right? And so, um, but look at the difference. Judas is sorry, but he didn't repent. You know, repentance is where you change your mind, not where God changes his. He's sorry, but he hasn't changed his mind. Judah's sorrow led to self-destruction. Peter's sorrow led to repentance. Big difference. And can I point out, Peter hid with the other disciples in community. He was broken but he was still part of the body. Judas went off by himself. I don't want to over-spiritualize this point, but I got to really just, I want to drive it home nonetheless. Like one of the most devastating things you can do spiritually is get off to yourself and just tell yourself the lie. It's just me and Jesus. That is the biggest lie that hell has ever produced Can you imagine if Judas had stayed in community and led to a point of repentance? How that would have changed the story? What if Judas had repented? (laughs) And was forgiven. See, he would have forgiven him. Because he was just doing what God needed done. And instead... He just is unwilling to repent, unwilling to own his own stuff. And, and he does, and he gets out of community, and, and his solution is, is self-destruction. While Peter hides right in the middle of community, and as broken as he is, he still just, he finds his place right there in the body. He doesn't run away. When you fall, if you, to authentically repent and change, you need the church to surround you and love you through it. And if you go out on your own, you will fall again. It will destroy you. Peter survived what Judas didn't because he stayed in that place of fellowship. And when Judas got off by himself, Satan had him to himself and just finished him off. The American church has, in the spirit of the age, overemphasized expressive individualism to the neglect of preaching the communal and collective responsibility of the church to foster faith, to nurture formation, to uphold accountability and sustainability. We need one another. And anything, any form of Christianity that denies that central tenet of faith is apostate. You're, you're really, you're going to get, what, what you're saying is, is, I know Jesus had this really great idea called the church, but I know better than Jesus. And I just got to tell you, that's next level arrogance. And it's really common in the American church. 
look, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is speaking into mayhem, he's speaking into the chaos, and he takes control, and we watch, and listen, like in the midst of when all of this is going wrong, Jesus is making sense of the, the most chaotic, the most painful events, and he's availing himself, right? He, he is taking on the pain, uh, our suffering. He, he grabs Malchus' ear. He's, he's making sure that his people escape. I mean, like we're watching just the hand of God. And, and in the midst of that, he's expressing this great love for his disciples, right? I mean, when, when they are about to abandon him, he doesn't abandon them. Like, if there's ever a moment you just screwed up, <laughs> you abandoned God. And what's his response? Let me, I'm going to protect these people. I'm going to make sure that nothing happens to them so that the word is fulfilled that he lost only the one. See, that's the heart of God for you. In the midst of all of your chaos, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of all the things, when at those moments when you most feel like abandoning God, when you, when you feel like it's not going the way it should or the way you think it should or whatever else, that the heart of God toward you is not one of, get away from me, I never knew you. The heart of God is one in the midst of that says that I know you, even in the midst of your abandonment. I still love you. I still care for you. I will still go to the cross for you. See, that's the God of Scripture. Not the God of Greek mythology or, pagan or any other pagan mythology. That's the real God. Who in the midst of all of those things speaks life. He takes control and he ensures that the will of God is done even as human will worked in a spirit of just devilish defiance. I'm going to kill that SOB despite his determination to defy both God and Satan. Satan doesn't want him to die. He wants to go after God's son. And In the midst of that, the God of all comfort and mercy speaks life. I hope it is a tremendous comfort to you to know that even when it appears like sin abounds, that God can use the willfulness of humanity to accomplish his goodwill. So that's what Paul is talking about when he says to us that, you know, he works all things for the good of those who love him. It does not say that all things are good. It doesn't mean that everything in that moment feels good or anything like that, it says that in the midst of all of the, the chaos, when, when the stuff is hitting the fan, when life is falling apart, that here's the thing is that in the midst of that, God is working on our behalf and He is creating a better future for us where His grace and His mercy can abound, where He can work in and through us to bring about lasting kingdom change within our lives and, and that he, He's working through the cosmos to bring about all of these things but listen if you don't settle those things in your mind in moments of peace if you don't settle those things in your mind in just simply in reading the scripture 
then you will find yourself in the midst of pain and difficulty trying to find solid ground. You will find yourself in the situation that both Peter and Judas found themselves in, right? In the midst of the, the storm when all the stuff was hitting the fan and life was, they were in tremendous pain. Things were not going the way either any of them had planned at that moment. They were expecting a revolution. They were expecting an armed uprising. I think Judas really believed that that was exactly what was going to happen. We'll never know till some, you know, till the great and final day. And I think we won't care then. Everybody, I've got questions I'm going to ask God. Yeah, sure you will. You're going to walk in the room and go, God. I'm here. <laughs> Even the most pious of us. Okay, but, any, you know, but reality, you know, being what it is right now. Oh, I've got questions for God. Listen, I am confident that Judas and Peter in that same moment came to a, 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 just this cataclysmic, everything they believed and thought was completely turned upside down, and it didn't go the way that they wanted. And if you have to decide right then and there that God is good, that you can trust Him, you won't. I'm not speaking a curse against you or anything like that. I'm just simply saying that's not the place to find out what you believe about God in that moment. The place where you find out what you believe about God is that in the midst of the calm before the storm, in the midst of moments like this where you and I begin to look at those things, and we, this is why we study the Word of God. We, we don't do it because you're going to get a merit badge. There's no merit badges. It, it's not the idea of reward being that where you are earning points, brownie points in heaven, and you're going to get a cooler car than everybody else in heaven or something like that. Don't, you know, I, it's, they make for funny jokes. It's not, that's not how reward works in the kingdom of heaven. Actually, you can just check that out in the newsletter on Monday morning because I wrote about that. But anyhow, uh, my point just simply being this. Listen. You and I study the Word of God because we want to know who He is and we want to be in relationship with Him. And as we have those encounters and stuff like that, and I already know who He is, so when the storm hits, I know who I'm talking to. I know what I'm talking about. I know where to press in. I know where to lean in in the midst of the storm and find shelter where I can find peace, where I can find rest, where I can gather together with the community of faith and know that these are the people who've also been like-mindedly studying His Word and are confident in His goodness even in the midst of my storm. And then we encourage one another. We build one another up so that we can stand through the storm, so that we can make our way through and those difficult times. And, and by heaven's grace, you and I can even sleep. Can I just tell you one of my favorite things is when the peace of God comes over me and I still sleep well in the midst of storm? Have you ever known that? If you haven't, I want you to. And so here, listen, we need one another. And we need the confidence that the God who is for us, even when all the, the chaos is hitting the fan, that we know deep within us that He is the God who will stand with us, who is in control of even those painful moments, and that He is working for the good of those who love Him. Maybe even saving your life. 
in what looks like chaos, pain, death, and sorrow. And so if you're here today and you're feeling like the world's a little too out of control, I, you know, I want to invite you to come get some prayer this morning. If you are in the midst of, you know, uh, pain and sorrow and difficulty, I want to tell you about the God who is for you and with you and that in his, in that moment, he's not talking about what an idiot you are or looking at you uh, and, and harshness and, and uh, you know, that what he's looking and extending to you in that moment is his mercy. He's the God who will go to the cross for those who abandon him. He's the God who stands with those who are oppressed, who are crushed in spirit. He's the God who sets the lonely in families. He's the God that's for you, not looking for reasons to crush you. Let's stand together. So whether your sin or someone else's sin, I just want to tell you that, that he loves you and that he knows you. He knows your circumstance. He knows all those settings. And, and what he's asking you to do is not just simply to obey him, but to trust him. That's really what it's all about is, do, do, will you trust me? Will you Believe that I am not only in control in the situation when everything looks chaotic, but would you trust me? Would you lean into me? That's what faith really is, right? It's trust. Would you put your faith in me even in the midst of hardship and difficulty? Will you walk with me when you don't have the clear answers? Because here's the thing. You're going to walk out that garbage no matter what. Nobody escapes it. Think about mortality, it's 100%. And so when the storms of life come, how are you going to go through it? Are you going to go through it by yourself, Judas? Or are you going to do it in community, Peter, where you can find hope, healing, and restoration, where you can find encouragement, where you can find love and mercy? That's invitation number one. Number two, hey, if you've ever made the mistake of acting more like Annas and Caiaphas instead of Jesus, instead of providing the, the place where people could come, and find healing and forgiveness. If, if, if you've ever been tempted to like, instead of forgive Judas, but to condemn him, maybe you've even spoken some harsh words in the past towards someone who was stumbling, falling, wrestling with God, having a hard time, and you realize that like, you may have actually contributed to pushing them away rather than drawing them near. Uh, I just want to say, you know, it's never too late till they close the lid on the box to just simply say, God, I, I do not want to be that kind of church person. I, I want to be a, an authentic disciple of Jesus 
And so today, Lord, I just ask, would you forgive me for having been the voice that drove Judas to that end? Would you help me to be the kind of person that stands alongside of a Peter and is a, not, doesn't need to be the hero, but wants to be the hero maker that will encourage my brother so that he can stand, encourage my sister in Christ so that they do not fall, uh, that would hear them out, would walk alongside of them, would forgive them and fold them back into the community. And so if you're here this morning and you as a believer have been less than an encouragement to Peter, let me invite you to also come and get some prayer. So let's, prayer team, go ahead and come on up. And so, Father, we just pray this morning as the prayer team is coming up. Father, we pray and, and just ask, Lord, would you be with us in our midst? And uh, for those of us who have uh, been uh, uh, just feel like we've been counted out or have been dismissed, uh, un, feel unloved uh, by uh, community and things like that. Lord, we pray that this would be a moment where we would uh, uh, renew our commitment to you and to the body of Christ, a time of just simply saying, God, would you work in me to uh, forgive those who did not stand with me, to trust that you were always with me, Lord, would you be my hope in the midst of my storm and my chaos? And Lord, would you be with those this morning who are wrestling with having been maybe less than comforting, less than kind, who have spoken harshly in your name instead of building up or promoting healing. And Lord, as they as they come with a heart of repentance, would you heal their brokenness as well? Would that they would find the same kind of love, forgiveness, and reception that Peter found when they went against the grain of who you are for who they thought you were. And as they surrender, would you just meet them, Holy Spirit of God, right now, would you just meet them where they are and then would you move them from the place of quiet, silent repentance to having the courage to speak to another brother or sister in prayer and ask them to pray alongside of them, taking their first steps toward making the community of faith the safe place that it is meant to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you have a wonderful time for Thanksgiving. God bless you. Hope to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, Thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.